Today's reading comes from Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The word of the Lord. So this summer we're doing a sermon series uh, called Public Faith, following work done by Tim Keller at uh, Redeemer in New York City in 2013. And this is our third week in the series. And this morning we're going to be talking about something that might seem like it's the opposite of faith, and that is doubt. In 2011, two Christian researchers, Allie Hawkins and David Kinneman, published a book called You Lost Me. And this book was a result of, uh, of a study that they did into why 18 to 29-year-olds had left the church. Not necessarily left their faith, but they had left the church. And they thought, you know, maybe they'd find one, two, three kind of dominant reasons that would explain why folks, these folks left the church. But, but they found really six um, kind of common themes running through these things. And, and one of them that was listed was this perception that the church is doubtless. That there's this sense that, that being a Christian meant being absolutely certain in one's beliefs. And so for these young people, when they began to have doubts, they felt like there was no one for them to talk to. And, and they feared that they'd be rejected by their community because everyone else around them was certain in all that they believed. And Hawkins and Kinneman, when they were looking at doubt, doubt really had kind of two different faces. One of them were intellectual doubts, and, and these are the doubts that, that we're quite familiar with. Questions like, how could a good God allow so much suffering in, in the world? Or, or how could a loving God send people to hell? Or how can I uh, reconcile um, faith and science? Or uh, you know, how can I be sure that the Bible is really reliable? Th- those kind of things. And, and these are things really which the church has spent most of its apologetic energy on. Coming up with reasonable responses to these kind of intellectual doubts and objections. But there was another kind of, of doubt that I think is even more powerful and, and more troubling and more pervasive, and that's institutional doubt. People walking away from the church because there's this sense that something is rotten 
right? How can I believe in light of, you know, the clergy sexual abuse scandal? Or that youth pastor who treated me horribly? Or, or all the pettiness and all of the gossip? Or what about greedy pastors or the ones who embezzled all of those funds? And it's that institutional doubt that's even more pervasive and, and pernicious and oftentimes lying underneath the intellectual doubts. And we see both of these kinds of, of doubts in, in a recent example in, in a film. Uh, it's called First Reformed. It's playing in select theaters now. And this is a movie where Ethan Hawke, he plays a, a pastor. He's the pastor of an almost 250-year-old tourist church in upstate New York that was saved from closing by the largesse of this neighboring megachurch. And so uh, the Reverend Toller, he commits himself at the beginning of the, of the film to keeping a completely and totally honest journal for one year, where he's just going to lay out everything that he's thinking and feeling, and after one year, he's going to destroy it. And in this journal, we, we, we get to hear him writing, and he's expressing his doubts that God is listening to him, and, and this really profound and pervasive disappointment with himself. And early in the film, a young man comes to him for counsel, and, and he's a radical environmental activist, one who it turns out is plotting a suicide bombing against a local energy company that just happens to be owned by a man who is a major church donor. And so Reverend Toller tries to counsel the man not to give up hope. But eventually the man kills himself and, and, and Toller becomes equally convinced of not just the righteousness of this young man's cause, but of his overwhelming sense of despair and hopelessness that drove him to take his own life. And so the movie, it, it builds towards its climax to this question of whether or not Toller is not just going to take up this young man's cause, but if he will employ his same methods. Will he adopt his tactics? And he's disgusted by himself, and he's dis- dis- disgusted by how he's allowed himself to be owned by this megachurch pastor and this major donor. And he's disgusted with the church that, in the face of this you know, overwhelming, impending ecological disaster, she's been silent And so these personal and these institutional doubts drive him to the point of of absolute despair and pushes him towards doing the unthinkable. But the truth is that, that doubt isn't the enemy of faith. It's not the boogeyman that that the church at its worst has made it out to be. The great uh, Christian author and uh, Princeton Seminary graduate, uh, Frederick Beekner said that doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. It keeps faith from being too comfortable. And Tim Keller himself said at a recent conference on public faith, he said, a faith without doubt is like a body without antibodies. It's not something that's going to last. And so doubt is necessary. Doubt can be good. And so the Christian perspective ought to be that doubt isn't as bad or as scary as sometimes it's been made out to be. And, and it's equally true that, that doubt isn't what makes one a, you know, quote-unquote adult in the room. As is sometimes the case uh, in, in the secular world where doubt can be kind of lifted up and idolized as sort of the only adult and intellectually serious option. You know, think about it. Uh, we talk about someone having blind faith. 
But it's never blind doubt. It's always honest doubts. And the entire scope of Western thought has been dominated by doubt for the last 500 years. You know, before that, it was, it was St. Augustine who said, I believe in order to understand. So knowledge starts with faith. But since Rene Descartes, it's been, I doubt everything except my own existence in order to understand. That's what's behind. I think, therefore, I am. The one thing I can't doubt is my own existence. But everything else can be doubted. And so the very foundation of knowledge is thought to be doubt. But the Bible has a much more nuanced view of doubt than that. Doubt isn't all that. And that the Bible can, can deal with doubt should be evident enough from the fact that it contains the book of Job. Doubt isn't all good. It's not all bad. But in the Bible, doubt is about making progress in faith. Doubt isn't to be feared, nor is it to be fetishized. Doubt is one of the things that God uses to lead us to the truth, the ultimate truth, of course, being God himself. And so we're going to look at three aspects of doubt this morning, using, using Psalm 73 as our conversation partner. And so the first is, what is doubt? And the second is, what causes doubt? And lastly, what transforms doubt? So what is doubt? What causes doubt? And what transforms doubt? So if we want to understand what doubt is, we can look at verses 1 and 2 where it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So verse 1 contains solid, undergirding, bedrock foundational theology. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Right? That's like a Christian saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That God is good to the pure in heart is the bedrock of the psalmist's faith. It's the foundation of his theological understanding of who God is and how God relates to the world and how the world is supposed to work. This undergirds his entire life. But then we see in the next verse, verse 2, that this solid foundation of his faith has been shaken. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And so what is doubt? Doubt is like losing your footing. Right? What once seemed stable and unshakable is shifting beneath your feet. You're not so sure anymore. You start to ask questions. You start to feel like you're falling. So doubt is destabilizing and it's disorienting. I had a friend from seminary who began to doubt some of the core tenets, I would argue the core tenet of the Christian faith. He was a pastor serving a church and he began to doubt the truth of the Easter story. And and not just that Jesus rose again on the third day, you know, whether or not that was true, but he doubted even if it was true, whether or not it actually mattered. Like if it made any difference at all. And so this doubt was unattended to and, and it festered and it grew and it destabilized and disoriented everything in his life. Right? His marriage had been built on this common foundation of Christ being at the center of their marriage. And so what happens when you remove that center? And, and as a pastor, you know, the congregation sort of assumes that when you're up here, you believe the things that you're preaching. 
And so slowly but surely, the doubts began to build, and he came to this place where he didn't believe any of it anymore. And he left it all behind, his wife, his ministry, and for now at least, the Christian faith. That's the bad side of a destabilizing and disorienting doubt. But then there's the story of Nicole Cliff, whose life was humming along nicely. She had founded uh, this website called The Toast, which was a successful, funny, sharp, thoughtful uh, feminist web magazine. She was living in Manhattan. She was an atheist, but not a jerk about it, you know? She thought it was nice for people to have faith, sort of like it's nice for five-year-olds to believe in Santa Claus, right? Like, you don't begrudge them the fact that they have this nice little belief. Sure, I don't believe it, but it's good. If you have faith, it's good for you. And she just had this belief that that when you die, that's all there is. And there's a beautiful poetry to life. Sort of, we get this time and then it's over. But one day, she, she was a new mom and she was worried about her child. She was sitting in a room by herself and she said, out of the blue, be with me. And this experience terrified her. I said, why did I say that? Who am I talking to? And then she read an obituary of the Christian philosopher and author, Dallas Willard. And as she's reading this, she burst into tears. And she kept bursting into tears and reading Christian theology and bursting into tears. And this was a woman who who describes herself as happy and even keeled, not a weeper at all. And here she was crying all the time. So this was troubling, and so she was disoriented. She was destabilized, and so she began to doubt her doubts. She had a friend who she knew was a Christian, and so she sent them an email saying, I want to talk about Jesus. And as soon as she pressed send on that email, she wished that she could reach through the tubes that make up the internet and pull that back to her. But, but they set up this phone call, you know, at some time in the future. And, and, and so the hour before the phone call uh, started, or she was going to make the phone call, something strange happened. That she decided in that hour that she was a Christian. And it wasn't like at noon she said, I, I don't believe. And by 1245, you know, she was ready to say the Nicene Creed backward and forward. It's just that she came to the realization during that hour. That the reason she had been crying so much was that she believed Jesus would, was who he said he was. And so doubt is what happens when the ground beneath us begins to shift. When our firm foundation becomes sinking sand. And we've seen this can lead us away from God. Or it can draw us closer to him. So doubt is a profound destabilization of our core beliefs and a disorientation about where we thought our lives were supposed to be headed and the way that the world was supposed to work. And it's an opportunity for life transformation, for good or for ill. So that's what doubt is and what it's like. But that brings us to this, the second question is what causes doubt? Where does it come from? And the key to understanding that we see in verse 3 where the psalmist says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So it's based on something that he saw and something that he experienced. In other words, his doubts had a, a rational and an experiential component to them. And the rational component is what he saw. His foundational belief was that God was good to the pure in heart. Right? God would give good things to good people and would make bad things happen to bad people. 
that if you kept the law, your life would go well, and if you broke it, your life was going to be a mess. And then he looked around, and he saw that plenty of people who were far from God were having great lives. They were healthy. They were in good shape. Their bodies were slim. They scoffed at God, and not only did bad things not happen to them, but their riches and their reputation increased. From the psalmist's perspective, this did not compute. How can God be who he says he is, a good God who loves righteousness and punishes wickedness, if he allows this injustice to continue? There's the, the famous book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. But what's often more troubling for us is is why do good things happen to bad people? I can deal with bad things happening to good people as long as they don't happen to good people or they don't happen to bad people. But for the psalmist and for us, this is troubling. This is trying for his faith. And so there's this this gap that he can see in his rational understanding between what he believes about God and how the world actually seems to work. And so that's the rational side of his doubt. But then there's the experiential component. Because it's not just that the wicked are prosperous. It's that he says, I envied them. Right? I wanted what they were getting. It's his experience of of, of feeling this desire for what they have. Because what's the point of being righteous if all it leaves you is feeling disappointed and miserable. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. From the perspective of his own prosperity and happiness, keeping the law has been a complete waste of time. So, how can he reconcile his belief in a good God who regards the pure in heart and the prosperity of the wicked? And how can he reconcile that what he once held true is now far from his heart? Walking with God, far from bringing him joy, is actually causing him to experience envy and pain. That's the experiential side of doubt. And it reaches this point in verse 16 where he admits that he just can't figure it out. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Doubt can eventually leave us in a place of mental and emotional and spiritual exhaustion. See, what causes doubt? It's it's a combination of rational reflection and personal experience. And in that sense, doubt has a lot in common with something else. Faith. All faith is born from some combination of those two things too. Rational reflection and personal experience experience. But when I talk about personal experience, I I, want to kind of break that down a little bit more because it's not just about our personal experience that leads us to believe certain things and to doubt certain things as well. Because there's also this powerful thing that, that we don't even pay attention to, and that's social experience. Social experience, it's related to this this field of study called the sociology of knowledge, which deals with how do we come to the beliefs that we hold or or to, to, to know the things we know. And to give a very brief and overly crude summary, one of the key findings of this area of study can be summed up as this. That we think we arrive at our, our, our beliefs by, you know, thinking and reasoning and logic. 
But the reality is we, we find most plausible the beliefs of the people around us and the people who we want to like us. The things we believe to be true, as well as that which we doubt, are profoundly shaped by the communities that we belong to and we identify with or we aspire to be included in. You know, think back. 80 years ago, imagine you're a white person living in the Deep South. There would be some things that you probably believed about black people, that they're lazy or inferior or not fit to mix with. Because that's what the people around you believe. It's not like you sat down and reasoned this out and and thought about it. That's just what the folks around you believe. Your entire social world is constructed to reinforce those beliefs. And we all like to think, of course, you know, that if we lived in that time and place, you know, we would have been one of the good guys. But the truth is, we probably wouldn't have been one of those. Our social world, it provides us with so many of our just default beliefs and our default doubts. So that's social experience. Of course, there's personal experience too, which can either reinforce or challenge those social beliefs. You know, you're given all of these ideas, but personal experience can definitely change those. So you have this, you know, social belief that New Yorkers are rude. And then you go and visit New York City, and the first thing that happens is you're walking through a crosswalk, and someone almost mows you down with their car. And then they give you the finger, and then you bump into someone, and they say, hey, watch where you're going, bub. Some of these things have happened uh, to my family in New York City. So that would reinforce your belief about New Yorkers. But then say you have a personal experience that's totally different. You get to New York, and you go to the subway, and you can't figure out how to get the Metro card, and someone comes over, a nice person comes over, and helps you purchase the card. You got to be careful, though, that they're not trying to steal your credit card, basically, (laughs) at that point. Um, But a nice person comes, they help you buy it, and then you're asking, how do I get around? And they show you the subway map and how to do the stops. And And then you're on the street, and someone comes up, they help you hail a cab, and they even help you put your bag in the trunk. Right Now your personal experience is going to cause you to doubt your existing beliefs. And so the point is this, doubt and faith, they, they come from some combination of reason and personal experience. And, and there's two traps, though, that we have to avoid when we think about this. And one of them is thinking, well, that if you've fallen into doubt uh, about Christianity, that it's strictly an intellectual thing. Right? We've seen that it's, it's much bigger and much broader than that. And it's not hard to imagine if you put yourself in a different situation or someone else's shoes. You know, imagine you grow up and you're a Christian and you're funny. And so you decide, hey, I'm going to make a career as a stand-up comic. So that means you go to open mics and you do sets and you become a part of the comedy scene, the comedy community. And one thing I've heard about this scene uh, from people who have been in it on good authority is that, that those with traditional, traditional Christian beliefs in this kind of community, these are not encouraged. They are mercilessly mocked. And many comedians would consider it beyond the pale that a thinking, intelligent person could believe any of this stuff. So if you're a Christian trying to break into comedy and you're hanging around all these smart, funny, acerbic people who mock religion, it might make sense if you start to have doubts. It's not that these people don't have points or arguments, but it's just that the social reality that you're embedded in is no longer reinforcing faith. In fact, it's, it's, it's working against it. It's discouraging. 
So that's one trap to avoid. If you're having doubts, to neglect to look at the kind of people you're spending time with and the communities you're identifying with and the people who you really, really, really want to like you. But the other trap to avoid is that thinking, well, okay, so all of our beliefs are socially constructed. And therefore, reason doesn't matter. Because I just believe the things I believe because I'm a, you know, millennial, Midwestern, middle-class white male. And that person believes the things that they believe uh, because they're in their own particular social location. And this is the fallacy that says, since all beliefs are socially constructed, therefore none of them are ultimately trustworthy, so we can never get at the truth or transcend our social location. The problem with that belief, that all beliefs are socially constructed... And so we can't arrive at the truth is that that belief itself is socially constructed and comes from a particular location. And so the problem with relativism is always that it eats itself. It's like the mythical uborus, the the, the snake that swallows its own tail. So what's the answer? Think. Use your mind, but be humble about it. Use your mind to try to understand the limitations of your social location and perspective. But use your mind also to transcend those limitations. Transform your thinking. And that's the transformation that happens at the end of the psalm, which leads me briefly to the last point I want to touch on. What is it that transforms doubt? We've seen what it's like, and we've seen what causes it, but what, what, what can transform it? And there's three things. There's experience, thinking, and an enlarged view of God. And we can look at where the, the turn happens in this psalm, in verse 17. So in verse 16, remember he said, But when I thought about how to understand this, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? It seemed to me a wearisome task. And then verse 17, until. So this is where the big transformation is going to take place. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And so what transformed his doubt from something that drove him further away from God to something that drew him closer to God was the experience of worship. And this was temple worship. So, you know, there was a lot going on. There were prayers being prayed, songs being sung, scripture being read, offerings and sacrifices happening everywhere. And so when he was in the depths of doubt, he went to the one place where God had promised to meet his people. And the tendency is when we're in a season of doubt, we want to pull away from the church. We want to pull away from those relationships that support and nurture and sustain faith. But, but instead of pulling away, he learned the important lesson to lean into that community during that time. That in the midst of doubt, the worst thing you can do is distance yourself from God's people or God's promises. So his doubt was transformed by the experience of being in the worshiping community. And the second thing that transformed his doubt was a transformed way of thinking, a new way of thinking. Before, early in the psalm, there was kind of this whiny arrogance about him. He said, I envied the wicked. He wanted what they had more than he wanted God. And so after his experience in the sanctuary, he has this new way of thinking. He sees how prideful and arrogant he was before. He moves from this me-centered view of the universe, you know, why me? to this God-centered view of the universe. What, what about God? He says in verse 21 22, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. So when he was bitter, he wasn't thinking right. He was like an animal. 
But now he's humble. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. And so he realizes that in comparison to God, he's like a child being led around by the hand. And so what transforms his doubt is humility about his own ability to understand the mysteries of God and the ways of humankind. And the last thing that transforms his doubt is an expanded view of God. Before, his view of God was very transactional, right? The point of being good and righteous was so that you'd have a good and easy life and God would provide you with good things like health and wealth. And when he saw that that wasn't the way things were working out, he almost rejected God. He had such a small view of God. You know, God's job is to give good things to good people. But his doubts, thankfully, led him to reject that small God. And realize that God is much greater than that. The real God is the God who is so much bigger than the God of rewards and punishments. The God who the psalmist could only see in part, but who we see fully in the person of Jesus Christ. The God who was so big that he became a tiny baby. Who was so rich and have everything, but he became poor. Who was so full of life that he died the death that we should have. But he was so powerful that death could not hold him. The God who is on the side of the losers of this world. The God who, we were, while we were still embittered, complaining, good-for-nothing sinners, gave everything for us. And when we understand that about God, when we doubt our small gods... We can meet the real God whom we will love, not because of what he can give us, but because by loving him, we get that which is greatest of all, God himself. These words are so beautiful. Let these be our prayer. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Nothing on earth. And so may doubt lead us to a place of that kind of faith where we desire nothing besides our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.